You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. So today I want to talk to you about a kind of a controversial subject. It's a little bit of a loaded subject. And it's the subject of cancel culture. I know that this is a subject that if I am not careful can get me into a lot of trouble. And uh, so usually when I do, when I preach a message in which part of it is my personal opinion and it's not the word of God, I usually take a seat because it's not, I got to differentiate preaching from truth. It's not to say that what I'm saying doesn't have an element of truth to it, but I want to differentiate between what I think and what the word of God says. So I'm going to bring up a chair here so that you know that when I'm sharing my opinion, I'm sitting down and when I'm preaching the word of God, I'm standing up because I want you to know that I don't think I'm better than any of you, okay? And I, was, I always like to think that as we walk through this life together as Christians, we're doing this together, amen? And my job is to instruct and to guide and to offer um, wisdom from a biblical perspective, but I always look at this as we're doing this together and not that I'm better than you and that you need to get on my level or anything like that. Um, and so... I want to talk to you about this kind of controversial subject today. And, you know, when we think about cancel culture, it ranges the gamut. I'm sure we've seen a lot of different things, okay? Whether you've watched the news or you've, you've tuned in online or you've seen social media, uh, cancel culture is just something that we see in the world today. And it can range from the outright ridiculous, like Hasbro dropping the name Mr. from Mr. Potato Head to become more gender-inclusive and less offensive so that's a, redi- that's a thing. It's a real thing. I'm just telling you. So it can, it can range from that to a person, uh, you know, being canceled from businesses because of their political views and their products being pulled from the market to, uh, you know, things like that. And then there's some things that are justified. So as we look at, like, the issues of, like, sexual abuse with people like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and you know, Kevin Spacey, and we see, like, situations of abuse and uh, abuses of power, and there's situations where canceling things like that are, are absolutely appropriate because people who do terrible things should be held accountable. But then there's other examples of counterculture that are a little bit more dangerous and serious. For example, uh, calls to defund the police, not to reform the police, not to, remove, not to remove people that are making bad decisions, but to do away with the police department in general. Now, as someone who works in emergency services, and some of you have worked in both fire and police, you recognize that that's an incredibly dangerous perspective to take. Who do you call then if your house is on fire? Who do you call then in a domestic abuse situation or a murder situation if there is no police to speak of? So I believe that there's a need for reform. You can call for reform and training, but to remove those things is a dangerous precedent. In San Francisco, the removal of the names of presidents, Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln from uh, uh, San Francisco public schools, uh, 44 of them to be exact. And the reasoning behind it was because it had ties to racism and dishonorable legacies removing the names of our founding fathers and presidents. There's even been talk of removing the statue of Thomas Jefferson 
from the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., because Jefferson was a slave owner. The man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, canceling him because he owned slaves. Now, throughout history, you always see that there were flawed men and women who uh, lived with the understanding of the culture of their time, flawed as it might be. Imperfect people who this current generation say their legacy and contributions should be erased because of their past. The problem is with this, when we do so, we are throwing out their contributions along with their sins, and when we do so, we undermine the very foundation of our country, okay? I like this quote, okay? If we can get to the next, oh, water. (laughs) Can we get to the quote, please? It's very soothing, I know. Okay, I saw this quote, and I I don't know who said it, but it says, history is not there for you to like or dislike. It's there for you to learn from it. If it offends you, even better, because then you're less likely to repeat it. It's not yours to erase. It belongs to all of us. It's so important for us to realize that, listen, there have been parts of our country's history which have not been great, okay? And, And there's parts in world history that have not been great. We don't celebrate the things that are bad. We recognize their accomplishments to this life and to this world, and we also acknowledge where they fell short because of their understanding of the times that they lived in, okay? So if we erase the past, if we do away with the past, then we will never learn from our mistakes. We'll never learn from the, the, you know, the mistakes of racism, the mistakes of uh, you know, the Second World War, and Nazism, all of those sorts of things. We need to learn from people's mistakes and not celebrate the mistakes, but recognize what we can learn from it. Uh, there's another concern as well, the loss of free speech. We should be concerned that anyone can be censored or silenced if they de- disagree with the mainstream point of view or whatever political party is in power. Free thoughts stifled, dissenting thoughts are silenced, And you cannot erase an entire portion of the population just because they disagree with you. I wish this, the newer generation understood this. You can't get rid of people. You can't get rid of their opinions. You can't get rid of their thought. In a free society, that's what we allow. We allow discussion. We allow disagreement. We allow discourse. In fact, the founding fathers knew that the value of public discourse in regards to disagreements on issues. And when we start to see that that censorship and, and dissenting thoughts being silenced or people being shouted down, that should be a cons- an issue of concern for us as we consider free speech. We have lost the ability to have considerate, respectful dialogue with one another. Instead, resorting to name-calling and straw-man arguments, but as Christians, we should be different. Amen? Okay, I'm I'm talking about this because we see it from both sides, whether you are a Christian or non-Christian, whether you are progressive or conservative. We see it from both sides that we can't get through it without name-calling. We can't get through it without um, resorting to middle school-level taunts instead of handling things like adults and to handle things not just like adults but as Christian adults. You know, that that's like, it's one thing to be an adult and a human being. It's another thing to be a Christian and say, you know, I'm not going to lower myself to the conversations 
that others are having. So, how do we deal with, what are we supposed to do with the idea of cancel culture? Well, number one, first of all, this, wow, that's, go the other way. <laughs> number one, somewhere, there we go. Christians are not supposed to cancel the culture but challenge it. That's what the job of Christians are to do. We're not to say, like, I don't like something, so let's just remove it. Let's pretend it's not there. Or let's actively remove it. Instead, we are to challenge the culture. How do we challenge the culture? Through rebuke and repentance. When someone's offensive, we should point out the area and the need for correction and call for repentance. Prophets of the Old Testament challenge the culture. Just go back and read them. You know, the, the role of the prophet wasn't just to predict the future. It was to call society back to the word of God and living the right way. That was the majority of their role in the Old Testament. They would say, you know, you've forgotten the orphan. You've forgotten the widow. You've oppressed your neighbor. You have gotten away from the worship of the one true God. You've mixed your worship with idols. And the prophet called them back and corrected them. We think about John the Baptist who challenged a culture, who went to King Herod and says, not right that you have your brother's wife and confronted him right in his uh, palace itself. They reminded people to get back to their moral roots. We don't challenge, we, we, we don't cancel, we challenge. This is better than trying to ruin someone's life or livelihood. Instead, a person should be confronted with their error and given a chance to apologize and change. If we don't, they don't learn from their mistakes. And if they don't, we don't demonstrate mercy and grace, which is a keystone, foundational element of Christianity. When someone's wrong, we confront it. We allow for repentance. We show mercy and we demonstrate grace. Unfortunately, this society that we live in today does not tolerate that. For a world that claims tolerance and acceptance, it is extremely intolerant towards anyone who views the world differently than they do. There's a lot of knee-jerk reactions to what people say. Instead of just looking at it and saying, hey, listen, people say dumb things. If we were to follow any one of you around in the course of a day, I would dare say, occasionally, from time to time, you say dumb things. You're welcome. Me too. Don't follow me around. I say dumb things. And some things are said out of ignorance. There's no malice in some people's words at times. It's just they don't know any better. They were raised in a different generation than you. And so it, uh, we have to, and sometimes my kids will say that. I just say, Dad, you shouldn't say that. I'm not saying that because I think that I'm, you know, trying to be offensive. I'm just coming from a different generation. And they're pointing out to me the errors and the flaws in that way of thinking, that way of discussion. And it's good to listen to those sorts of things. We should allow for repentance, change, mercy, and grace. There are some people even, uh, when we think about the idea of cancel culture, there are some people that have become famous because all they set out to do is to cancel someone else's culture. All they set out to do, there are people on Twitter who become famous because they just point out and look for and troll people to see if they'll say something dumb and if there's a way that we can kind of get 
a certain amount of outrage because of it and cause people to walk away from those things or to boycott that product or to put that place out of business or to remove that person from movies or TVs or whatever the case might be. That is not the answer. We live in a day in a culture today, and I'm going to sound like the old man in the room here because I'm getting there. There, we live in a day and age, too, where we're canceling culture and we're saying that's wrong and we yell and shout at it and we remove it, but we don't have anything to replace it with. You follow what I'm saying? Like we're saying this is not right and this is wrong and you need to do away with it. Meanwhile, we live in a culture with shifting morals where it's whatever you think is right as long as it doesn't offend anybody. But if you're around long enough, something you will say will offend someone about something. So we are putting our hands in uh, a group, a generation of people that doesn't, has very loose and fluid morals. And then as a result of that, like, we don't know where to stand on that. So I'm concerned about the future. Our job is not to cancel, but to challenge. Secondly, number two. Number two. There you go. Christians are supposed to change the culture by their love and example. As Christians, we shouldn't resort to the world's tactics. We should pray for our critics and the people who offend us. Paul did that. Paul recognized there were people that were, did not agree with him, that had everything in the world to say against him, and he would say, be it not held against them. He knew his integrity would stand the test of time. His words would stand the test of time, and he wasn't going to give place or allow those who are critics uh, or enemies of him and the gospel to take him off of what he was called to do. The early church of the first century changed the world through the gospel. Did they change it through uh, printing out leaflets and pamphlets? Did they, they go and put post-its in the, in the public square? Did they engage in debate? Did they uh, bring people and say, okay, we're going to have them run for Roman Senate? And once they get there, we'll have representation there, and then it will change the culture. They went about it backwards. You want to talk about going analog. You want to talk about going grassroots. They just relied and rested on the power of God, the power of the message of Christ, and the power of the gospel, and it literally transformed regions. That in, in cities, people gathered together all of their books of magic and burned them in the public square. Because the power of God had reached that community and the gospel had transformed lives. We're trying to change the world through the world's means. But if we change it through the New Testament example of the gospel, then we will see transformation take place in the world we live in. The early church stood in the face of persecution. They stood firm for the word of God and loved Jesus passionately. They operated in the power of the Holy Spirit and loved a world that actively hated them. Cities changed. Lives were changed. Hearts were changed. What was the cure? The cure was Jesus. Not canceling or criticizing people who were driven uh, by the, the desires of this culture, but they were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're to change the world, not cancel the culture. We're to change the world not use the world's methods to bring about change. Number three, we don't fight the culture world, war with the world's weapons. We do not fight the culture world, war with the world's weapons. 
If we're looking to change the world, we're not to use the world's ways and means of doing it. Unfortunately, Christians focus on fighting the world with the very things the world gives us. It's like going on social media to complain about social media. Don't you see the irony in this? I can't believe Facebook has censored me. Then get off Facebook. I can't believe this or that. We're sending our outrage on the very medium that profits from your outrage. Do we understand that today? The algorithms are set up to get more clicks, more articles, more revenue, more interaction by the fact that you're getting upset about something and posting about it. The world was not changed in the early church through social media. It was changed by people operating in the power of the Spirit. What if we just shut these things off entirely? The Bible tells us that we should be called out from among them and be separate. We have to be careful at who we look at for our inspiration. Look at who our allies are. Christians embracing comedians and political commentators because they dislike something that we dislike, and all of a sudden they're our favorite entertainer. Have you ever sat down and watched their show? You ever sat down and watched their comedy special? And you realize that they're about as diametrically as far from you morally and perspective-wise as anyone else could be. Or perhaps you heard about it recently. There's a church in San Antonio that on a Sunday morning a pastor is leading the, the congregation in the chant, Let's Go Brandon. Which, if you don't know what that means, it's a racial, it's not a racial, but it is a uh, vulgar epithet directed at Joe Biden. And so he since apologized for that. But that's not what we're doing on Sunday morning. That's not what, that's not what the church is supposed to be about. We don't fight with the world's weapons. We fight with prayer. Worlds are changed through prayer. Worlds are changed by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our words are empty. Our words don't change people's lives. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes hearts, changes lives, and our service to one another. When we do good for God, when we do good for those in need, we change the world that we live in. We draw attention not to ourselves but to Jesus. And if attention comes to us and they ask us, why are we doing it? We're doing it because of the Lord. When we do this, when we spend less time watching the news and arguing with people who really won't listen anyway, if we stop doing those things and devote ourselves to being Christ's hand extended, what's going to happen is you're going to be more at peace with God, at peace with others, and dare I say it, you'll be at peace with yourself. How many times have you shut off the TV or got off social media? And I'm saying this, okay, Thanksgiving's Thursday, in case you forgot. You'll be sitting down breaking bread with people who are very different than you in your own home. People who inevitably, can I just tell you this too, because this happened to me. I'll get together with the extended family sometimes, and they feel like I want to talk about religion, or their particular religion, or their particular brand of religion. And honestly, can I be honest with you? I don't want to talk about religion. I want to eat turkey. I want to sit down. 
I want to I watch a football game. I just want to know how you're doing. Tell me about your life. How are your kids doing? How is your family doing? You know, I just want to let you know I love you and love being around you. But do we have to go there like right out of the bat, you know, right off the bat, let's talk gun control. Let's talk politics. Let's talk the economy. Let's talk. Stop. Please. Pass the gravy. Glory. Pass the cranberry sauce. Hallelujah. Pass the uh, sour cream mashed potatoes. I'm going to get out of this seat in a minute here. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I want to challenge us today. Let's stop getting caught up in these things and focus on what we're supposed to be, which is Christ's hand extended to the world. Christ's hand extended to your family. This can go away now because we're in Philemon. Let's turn to the book of Philemon chapter 1. Now, Philemon is the last of four letters that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, while he was under house arrest when he was in prison. They're called the prison epistles. It's a unique letter because it's addressed to an individual rather than a church or a pastor. It's unique. You know, this is one of those few occasions where you see it's addressed to someone who really is not a pastor, he's not a church. And so Philemon was a Roman who became friends with the Apostle Paul. He was well-to-do. Philemon was an active member of the church in Colossae. And he also had a church that met in his home. But Philemon also had a slave named Onesimus. Now, please understand that slavery was commonplace during the time of the Roman Empire. Slavery was and is a horrible thing. It's not endorsed in the Bible, even though many slave owners in the 1800s used the Bible to justify slavery. The Bible makes it clear that slavery is wrong. But the Apostle Paul is not trying to abolish slavery in the Roman Empire. He is trying to address it one person at a time, and he starts with Philemon. Now, here's where things get complicated. At some point in time, Onesimus did something and ran away from his master, Philemon. Now, we don't know whether he stole from him or whether he he did something that he shouldn't have done, but he runs away from Philemon. And while he's on the run, Onesimus goes and visits Paul where he is in his house arrest, and he asks Paul for help. And Paul, while Onesimus is spending time with him, Paul, of course, preaches the gospel because that's what the apostle Paul does every time he is out somewhere. He, wherever he is, he preaches the gospel. Eventually, Onesimus becomes a Christian. Now, there's a bit of a dilemma here because um, Paul recognized that although he is grateful for Onesimus being there and helping him and being a Christian and lending him a hand, in fact, uh, Paul talks about him being very useful to him, he recognizes that there is this kind of looming tension in the room where Onesimus has run away from Philemon. Philemon is a person that's in the church and a pretty notable memory as the church that meets in his home and that something should be said or done about this. So Paul writes a letter to Philemon, and he sends Onesimus back, and he sends him with this message to accept Onesimus, forgive him, and not to just to take him back as a slave, don't do that, but to make him part of his own family. And here's what the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 8. He says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, 
Now, I want to pause here. Paul, remember that he preached and brought the gospel to Colossae and Ephesus and those other cities, and he established the church, and people were saved under his ministry, and Philemon was saved under Paul's ministry. So he's saying, I could demand this of you as your pastor. I could command you to do this, and you'd be obligated to do it. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such as one Paul, the aged and now uh, prisoner of Christ. So Paul is kind of taking a moment. Just want to let you know I'm, I'm old. I'm in prison. You know, I am your pastor. You, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old, and you, know, you should probably listen to me. So he's appealing to love here. And he says, uh, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. That's the word that he uses there. This is my son, Onesimus. It doesn't mean that Onesimus is actually Paul's son. But through faith in Christ, he brings Onesimus to salvation, and he is begotten as one uh, in Christ. My son Onesimus, whom I begotten while in chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and me. So he's instead asking Philemon, he says, you know, I'm asking you to consider this request. I'm not telling you to do it, but please listen to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I want to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So what Paul is saying here is saying, you know, he wanted Onesimus to stay with him, but he didn't want to create tension with Philemon, and he didn't want him to feel like he was forced to do it. So he says, I'm sending him back to you with a request. I'm sending him back, and I'm appealing to you on the basis of love to take this man and treat him as though he were your own family. He said, I didn't want to do this without your knowledge or consent. Verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you in both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul is recognizing God's sovereignties here. He's saying, perhaps Onesimus was sent to me so that Paul could bring about reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. He's like, perhaps God orchestrated this and lined this all up just so I could be the go-between and the mediator between the two of you. And this is a lesson for us to consider, too, as well. As we think about the world we live in, which all, with all of the tensions, whether it be politically or especially racially as we look at the world in the last uh, few weeks here, is that, you know, the role of us being a mediator, a go-between two parties to try and bring reconciliation. Verse 17, he says, if you count me as your partner, receive him as you would receive me. But if he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing this to you with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me your own self besides. Okay. So he says, yes, brother, let me have joy from the Lord and let it refresh my heart in the Lord. So Paul is saying, listen, just so you know, I'm sending him back to you, and if he's stolen anything from you, if he's taken anything from you, I personally will pay you back. Whatever he owes, I will make up the difference here. See, Paul put, like, actual action to his words. He wasn't just saying, you know, you take care of it, and whatever needs to be done, you take care of it, and don't worry about me. Paul says, I'm willing to pay. He says, 
I wrote this, just in case you think someone else wrote it, I wrote it down. He said, not that I should owe you anything. In fact, you owe me your very soul for showing you the way to salvation. So you see how Paul makes these appeals and these kind of gentle reminders of of his uh, role in Philemon's life. Uh, And he says, you know, whatever is necessary, I will bring about and pay the difference here in order to bring about reconciliation. Here, Paul is being Christ-like. Remember that we were once slaves to sin, separated from God, and Christ gave his life as a ransom for us so that our debts would be paid and we could be reconciled to God. Here, Paul is modeling Christ-like sacrifice in the case of Onesimus and Philemon. He says, I'll be the go-between in order to bring about reconciliation and make it right. So, I don't know why he keeps going there, but let's go to the next slide after that. Thank you. So what can we learn from Philemon? We can learn the lesson of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship that had been previously broken. Christ reconciled us to the Heavenly Father through his death, and the Bible tells us that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to bring people back to God. Now, Paul calls for Philemon to receive Onesimus back, forgive him, and treat him no longer as a slave but as a brother. This was unheard of. In Roman culture, a slave that ran away from his master could be punished with physical beating or even imprisonment. But the Apostle Paul appeals to Philemon as if they were truly partners in the gospel. If you are truly my partner, he says, then you will receive him as though you were receiving me. The goodwill that you would show me, show to this person. And whatever has been done in the past, forgive and let reconciliation take place. Reconciliation begins when you try to understand the other person. Put yourself in the shoes of someone else. Sometimes this is difficult for us to do because all we know is our own perspective. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of another person particularly in the shoes of a minority or someone of a different race. Understand their plight. Understand what they've been through. In some cases, you'll find that they've been through a lot. Most of us will never know what it was like to have a grandfather or grandmother in an internment camp during the Second World War simply because they were Asian. I want you to think about that. During the Second World War, there were camps set up where Hundreds of Asians were kept there because they might thought to be spies for the Japanese. Or imagine being followed around in a convenience store just because the owner thought you were going to steal from them because you were Hispanic. Or being black and only being able to vote in the last 14 presidential elections because you weren't allowed to vote until 1965 or that you weren't allowed to marry the person that you loved outside of your race until 1967. Or to, make, to work hard and make contributions to society, but never getting recognized for your hard work because of the color of your skin. Like Katherine Johnson, who helped do calculations for NASA's Mercury and Apollo 11 space missions, but was never recognized because she was black and she was a woman or like Louis Latimer who helped create the carbon filament and the light bulbs that we used to have before we had LEDs, 
or Alexander Miles, who invented the automatic elevator door, most of these people never received the patent, public acknowledgement, or the resources for their invention. I know it's gotten quiet right now. I can tell. It's uncomfortable. And I understand that. But we sometimes think it's racism as being mean to a person of a different race or using racial epithets or slurs. They say, well, because I don't do that, I'm not falling into racism. But it's also a mentality that people can have. When you think of a different race, the question we should ask ourselves is, are we suspicious of them? Do we distrust them? Or do we judge them? Or when people use the words, why can't they just be quiet? It contributes to an us versus them mentality. And this is a mindset that isn't Christian. There is real pain, and part of the way that we heal it is by acknowledging it and listening to it. Listen, there's all kinds of crazy talk out there about how we should fix this. And some of it just goes completely in the other direction. But I'm talking about on a personal level, what we should understand is we shouldn't simply paint people a picture of people and we say, well, they're that way, even though we have friends, and if we talked that way around our friends, they might become uncomfortable with that. People of color, people of a different race. And we need to understand that there's actual pain that's gone on there. There's things that you and I will never have experienced because we've never been in that situation, and we need to be kind and compassionate. I'm not calling for a full overhaul of everything that we've done here or everything that's in this country. That's, I kind of mentioned that at the beginning of my message. That's not what I'm talking about. Instead, what I am talking about is I'm talking about for us on a one-to-one level, on a Philemon and Onesimus level, that we have a conversation, that we discuss, we talk, we listen to what people say without any kind of agenda, without any kind of approach to try and defend one person or another or one situation or another. Instead, we just listen and hear what they have to say and treating them like part of the family of God. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossian church, the church that Philemon was a part of, said this in uh, Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11. Now remember, same church, Philemon, writing to uh, this same group of people. And he says to you, but you now, now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old man with his deeds, and put on the new man with a renewed knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now look at this, verse 11. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. What does this mean? There's no distinction or classes of people in Christ. There isn't. There's no difference. In the eyes of Jesus, think about it. In the eyes of Jesus, when he, all that he sees is lost and saved. And the question is, do we look at people that way? Lost or saved? Or do we see color and race and differences and we don't look at it that way? There's no distinction. There are no classes of people in Christ. There's no one who's greater or lesser. The labels that we put on people here are not used in Christ. In Christ, there is only one faith. 
In Christ, there is only one family. In Christ, there is only one heaven. There's not going to be sections of heaven like parts of New York City, okay? It's not going to be a Chinatown. There's not going to be the Polish section. There's not going to be the Italian section. There's not going to be like different sections where we say, okay, everyone's divided up into different sections that when you get to heaven, you only go to your section. You see your people versus other people. There's only one heaven. There's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism who is through all and in all. So when we get there, we'll all be there together. Everyone's going to be there who calls on the name of Jesus as Savior. There won't be a different section, but one place with every tribe, tongue, and nation praising God. When we understand what Paul is saying, we are recognizing and realizing that we're all equal at the cross. We are all equal at the cross. What do I mean by that? Is that there's either one or two things when it comes to the cross. Either we are all sinners in need of a Savior, all of us. If we don't know Jesus as Savior, we, again, lost, saved, sinner, saint. That's the only thing that heaven looks at. They don't look at the color of the skin. They don't look at their family history. They don't look like they were born into. They don't look at uh, the dynamics that, or what they did in the past. They look at, all, all heaven looks at is do you know him or do you not know him? So when it comes to the cross, either we don't know Jesus and we're still sinners and we're all sinners and we're all equal in that. Or we're all saved and we're all saints. There's not a classification of saints. There's not some people that are better saints where Jesus' blood is more valuable in them than it is in other people, but it does the same cleansing work. Aren't you thankful for the blood of Christ that is, even though you have a lot of sins, and, and listen, you know, as a Christian, you might have come, and you might have come from a, a background where, like, you were pretty good, and God saved you, and you don't have a lot to talk about. Or maybe you came from a background where you came to know Christ, and you had a lot in your past, and God forgave you of all that. It doesn't mean that your life is better than the other person because God saved you from a bunch as opposed to a little and that your salvation is more valuable. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that we're all saints in Christ. And if we're all saints in Christ and we are all part of the family of Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to think of them that way. We're not all that different, really, people. When you think about people, they're the same things are true of pretty much every person. All people love their family. They worry about making ends meet. They think about the future. And they want to find peace and happiness in their world. They just need someone to care about them. Like Paul cared about Onesimus. So what can change hearts? Not to cancel the culture. Then what can change hearts? What can change the culture? It's Jesus. It always has been and always will be Jesus. And how many know that Jesus' agenda is so much different than ours? The way that Jesus approaches things and handles things is so much different than ours. You even think about like Jesus. They tried to trap Jesus all the time. First, they tried to, a teacher of the law brought to Jesus says, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He wants to have a political argument with Jesus to try and trap him so that they can find grounds to put him in jail. <laughs> and you know what Jesus did? He's like, 
I, I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. And can you as a believer and a brother and sister in Christ recognize that I see what you're doing and just not engage in it? Jesus says, okay, um, show me a coin. Hands him a coin. Who's, whose image is on this coin? Caesar. He's like, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. And it's like a mic drop. Jesus just doesn't even bother. He's like, boom. And he walks away and the people's like, I don't know what just happened. That Jesus always handled people with wisdom. He didn't get into like, well, you know, I'm part of this, and you know, uh, the Zealots think that, and you know, the Romans. Some there are some Romans that are actually Christian, and there are some Romans like, you know, I, I medicine. He didn't get into that. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm not going there, because he recognized my mission is to save the lost, crippled, well people, you know, Samaritans, Jews. Roman soldiers, he's just reaching everybody because he doesn't look at those things. He only looks at the person. What's the, the change? How, it's gonna, how are we going to change hearts and lives? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. He's the cure for this culture. Jesus changes perspectives. Remember James and John? You know, the sons of thunder walking with Jesus, part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they go to Samaria and uh, James and John said, Lord, can we just call fire down on these dirty Samaritans? You know, they're, they're half-breed Jews. They, they worship a different God. We shouldn't have anything to do with them. Like, can you just call fire down on them? And Jesus is like, no. Change their perspective on the Samaritans by his ministry to the Samaritans. Think about the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, when when. The Lord leads Peter to Cornelius' house. And Peter's like, I shouldn't even step foot in the house of a Gentile because it's unclean. If I step foot in the house of a Gentile, I can't even do temple worship this week because I'm considered unclean and I have to go through a ritual cleansing and I have to, you know, I'm considered defiled. I can't even go in person's house. And God's like, go anyway. And he goes and he preaches. And all of a sudden, everybody in Cornelius' house is baptized in the Holy Spirit saved, filled with the Holy Ghost, and baptized. When he get back to Jerusalem, he had some explaining to do. Because the Jerusalem church is like, we understand that you went into a Gentile's house. And then Peter explained how God was in it. And the church rejoiced and said, even the Gentiles have received. God changes perspective. Christ is still the answer. He's still the cure. The gospel, realizing that it's not about race, it's about whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you believe or you don't believe, may God help us to be able to recognize that we change the culture we live in through the love of Jesus, through the gospel, starts with loving people, even our enemies, and reaching out to them with the love of Jesus. Now, some have wondered what happened to Onesimus as I wrap up this message here as the worship team comes up. What happened to Onesimus? Remember the slave who went back to Philemon. Now, we never really hear how the meeting with Philemon met, went. You know, we're, we're inclined to think what might have happened, but we don't know. But interestingly enough, church history tells us, as the writings of the Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, an early church leader, around 110 A.D., he writes a letter, and one of the people that he, he writes a letter to is he writes the letter to Onesimus, bishop, of the church of Ephesus. Onesimus, bishop 
of the church of Ephesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. That Onesimus went from being a castaway, runaway slave from the household of a church small group leader to finding Christ in the house of, in uh, prison with Paul and eventually and in just a, a few years' time elevates to the point of being a bishop in the church of God. Both Catholic and Protestant scholars agree this is the same Onesimus that Paul brought to Christ in prison. I wonder if today, if we can just take a look at this moment, I, I hope you hear my heart, church, that I don't want to fall into the trap of the daily news feed. I don't want to resort to name-calling or getting caught up in those debates that sometimes divide us. And there are strong feelings on either side. But can we agree to understand today that at least we need to know is that the gospel is the answer, the love of Jesus is the answer, and reaching people is the answer. This morning, maybe even as we're talking today, that God would work in our heart. Again, our perception of people. Yeah, but they did this. We understand that they're bad people. We get it. We know that, that there are things that people do, and they should be held accountable for their actions, and they should. But what about our attitude? Our perspective. How do we view not just the people involved in that situation, but everybody who goes by that race or that color or that particular ethnicity? It challenges us to our core that we would be people that care about people and don't see all the other stuff, the static, all the other divisions, and remembering that in Christ that we are made one. And in his eyes, there's only two kinds of people. Those who know me and those who don't. And are we the Paul, the mediator, the go-between to help bring those two sides together so that they can look to Jesus and that there can be reconciliation there? Can we pray? Let's do that today. So precious God, I just thank you today for this, this word. I thank you for a loving and patient congregation. And Lord, although some of these words were hard to say and maybe even be harder to hear, Lord God, I just pray, Lord God, that they they would be received, Lord God, with the the sentiment and with um, the, the heart that I'm communicating it with today. Lord, I pray that we would not fall into that spirit of offense and look to cancel things we don't like, Lord. There's a lot about this world that we don't like and there's a lot about church that we don't like. But Lord God, I pray that, Lord, we would know your heart, that we would be about your business, that we'd be reflecting your heart and your spirit in the way that we act and live. So Lord, I just pray that you just bring about blessings on us as we look at our own lives and as we look at our own perspective. Maybe you're calling us away from certain things, certain arguments, discussions, certain behaviors, certain attitudes. Lord, I just pray you begin to work in hearts that we as we sit here today. Work in us, Holy Spirit, Lord. You know what we need to change. And Lord, I just pray that as we go into our meetings with our family and friends at Thanksgiving, Lord God, help us to be your hand extended, your voice, your words, Lord. Maybe not be caught up in the traps of uh, what others might try and put before us, Lord God. But instead, I pray that we would be your voice, your words, your hand extended in grace and love. 
Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.